You're listening to the 3 FM Uncommon Sense podcast with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we chatted with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we had with us Vikan Babkenyan and Professor Joy Demusi, two prominent historians who were talking about their contributions to the Honest History book, in particular how they relate to Anzac and the Great War. Then we chatted with Meredith Penman and James Evans, two actors from Bell Shakespeare's latest production, Richard III. And finally, we spoke with Tim Wright, Asia-Pacific Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, about the UN negotiations currently taking place to ban nuclear weapons. And you are listening to 3RRR with Amy Mullins. The show is Uncommon Sense and, as promised, we have our regular guest, Ben Altham, who's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, joining us in the studio. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing on this fine, rainy Anzac Day? Yeah, I didn't go into the ceremony this morning. Um, Weren't at the dawn service? No, I wasn't. Um, must have been pretty soggy for those uh, those attendees. Just a tad and very dark. Yeah, but um, you've got Joy Demusi coming on, so um, I'll let you talk Anzac with her. I know, I'm very excited. Um, she's just an amazing scholar, so no, it's going to be wonderful to have her. Uh, so, Ben... Federal politics, what are we doing? Because I know there's a lot has been happening, but maybe we'll first look to something that there's a few developments in, uh, particularly the portfolio of immigration. Um, we have uh, Peter Dutton, who's the wonderful Minister for Immigration, um, and we also have uh, Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister, and there's been a couple of co-announcements uh, that they've they've been jointly doing recently. Uh Turnbull on Tuesday, so after the show last week, uh, announced on Facebook that the government was going to scrap 457 visas, uh, which is really the immigration program to bring uh, skilled workers to Australia where there are various shortages. Uh, But Ben, I mean, are they really scrapping 457s or are they just rebadging it? Uh, so, yes, they are scrapping the 457 visa and they're introducing two new visas to replace that visa. Um, and they will be stricter visas um, and they'll have stricter conditions. And it'll be harder for you to become an Australian citizen um, if you have one of those visas. And will, there'll also be um, many more restrictions on the sort of occupations that those visas can cover. And, I mean, I looked at the list of 457s. There are some pretty funny and random uh, occupations that we ha- apparently have skill shortages of, but one of them was a public relations manager. I'm a bit confused as to whether we have a shortage of those. Yes, uh, I don't think we have a shortage of spin doctors in Australia. In fact, there's a <laughs> plague of them overrunning the land. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean... For whatever reason, um, the government's decided to take this move. I think largely politically. Um, There was definitely a case that a lot of the 457s were being rorted, but it wasn't so much at the top end of town with CEOs or whatever. It was more with companies bringing in foreign workers to undercut Australian labour. And we've seen, you know, with things like the 7-Eleven wages scandal, Mm. where um, some of these companies have been basically using the 457 to circumvent the Australian minimum wage. Now, the government says it's going to try and crack down on that, but 
uh, if you look at what they're what they're recommending, it's actually very very light touch regulation. So there's no one thinks that these new visas will really actually solve that particular problem. Where they might actually cause troubles though is more with skilled workers, like actually genuinely skilled workers. Where, for example, universities are very worried about what the effect is going to be on hiring overseas scientists and academics and professors. You know, very very skilled. Um, you know, people with a lot of talent um, who are in high demand internationally um, and it's not it's now going to be harder to get these people. In fact, at one stage it looked like universities wouldn't be able to hire overseas lecturers at all, but um, the government since actually clarified that, so they've had to back down on that one at least. Well, you would hope so. Um, and Ben, I mean... In terms of also international students, I know a lot of, for example, uh, you know, if we take, for example, Malaysia, you get a lot of uh, medical students and also engineers um, or engineer students coming to Australia, studying those degrees and then hoping to find a job through that 457 visa in Australia and then maybe getting permanent residency and then eventually uh, citizenship. Is, do you think that that kind of uh, pathway will be thwarted? Uh, it's much longer now. So it's moved from one year to four years before you can now apply for citizenship. So it's extending the pipeline of your citizenship very, very substantially. Um, and I think, you know, let's just talk about the message that it sends. It sends the message that Australia is pulling up the drawbridge. Mm-hmm. You know, at the very time when, uh, because of what's happening in Britain and the United States, there's actually a surfeit of global talent there where we should be actually saying, right, we're an open, free, tolerant society. We can bring these people of talent to our country, benefit, uh, you know, like these are the people that we want to be moving to Australia. Even the government admits that. So, uh, yeah, it's very much, I think, uh, playing to uh, populist political instincts here. The government's essentially dog whistling here uh, to One Nation type supporters, you know, it's saying... Uh, you know, and we saw that with Malcolm Turnbull's next intervention last week, which was his Australian values kind of speech about the citizenship test. So the citizenship test will be made tougher and it will have more information there that you'll have to correctly fill out um, mm. about these nebulous things called Australian values, whatever they are. Yes, well, there was a very entertaining discussion over Twitter about Australian values. Ben, what are Australian values? I mean, <laughs> apparently Turnbull is going to be um, bringing them out for consultation so we can discuss and consult what Australian values are. Is it a bit concerning that we don't know what we value? Because presumably we used to value multicultural society uh, and, and f- I guess, fairness. Is that something that's a value? Well, there was a very embarrassing moment where a journalist asked Malcolm Turnbull, what are the Australian values, Prime Minister? And he waffled for about a minute (laughs) and a half because he couldn't really identify any. Uh, If you go to the Prime Minister's website, he mentions a list of ones that uh, are very noble values like uh, democracy, the rule of law, uh, equality for all, things like this. Sounds like the Westminster system and democracy. These are are certainly noble values, but whether they're Australian values, I think, uh, is very much open to question. And, you know, you might also ask yourself how much the coalition government of Malcolm Turnbull adheres to these kind of values as well. Yes, maybe it's just agility and innovation. That could be a new Australian value. Well, we haven't heard very much about agility and innovation since the 2016 election. No. So... Very interestingly, uh, the government seems to have gone cold on the idea of uh, 
exciting times and innovation and, and certainly these four five seven changes will actually be a bad thing for innovation that's um it, for example the tech sector is very upset about them because it's mm. going to be harder to hire overseas tech workers and programmers absolutely and a lot of uh commentators have been somewhat cynical but perhaps realistic in suggesting that malcolm turnbull's well-timed announcements around the four five sevens as well as the citizenship test was uh because it was just before a news poll going out out into the field. Do you agree? Well, I mean, I think if it really was as cynical as that, then it shows that the government is desperate. Um, I think it's probably more calculated than that and we're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff over the next few months because the government seems to have very little in the way of an economic or social policy agenda. You know, my thoughts are that it was really a way of getting housing affordability off the front pages. You know, the government Mm. has no solution for housing affordability as we talked about last week. So um, by shifting the debate to immigration and Australian values, the government can talk about things that are much more to its liking. Yes, and something that they may have a very superficial answer to as opposed to one that they probably won't have an answer to in the budget which is coming up. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Like the idea that the government can solve housing affordability with a single budget is, of course, laughable. Um, What the government is going to do about this is anyone's guess, because as we've talked about, it's a very hard problem to solve. Um, And that's part of the problem for the government. You know, um, it's now a four-year-old government and there's a whole bunch of problems that it's hard for it to blame on Labor now. It's pretty transparently obvious that this is the government's own issues to deal with. So the budget, I think, is going to be one of those ones where... Um, it could well be quite an unpopular budget simply because the government's going to make a series of decisions no matter what. You always have to do some things in a budget, cut something. Um, <clears throat> even if you follow through on all just the things that they've said that they'll do, there's um, some pretty unpopular measures in the pipeline. So I don't expect the government to get a bounce from the budget. In fact, I suspect that the budget will be unpopular. Yes, well, I mean, a budget truly is something that signals one's priorities, whether it be in business or in a not-for-profit or in government. It really shows where the priorities are and where they're not and where you've chosen to place money and and have not. And uh, George Brandis has just announced that uh, the cuts that he had floated to come about in July to community legal centres will no longer proceed. I mean, how much of this is a... A reprieve and how much of it is just, well, it's a little bit too little too late because, I mean, it's already chronically underfunded, Ben. Yeah, congratulations to the community legal centres for the campaign that they ran against George Brandis. It was a very effective campaign at the grassroots level, really, and I think they were able to show how important community legal centres are and I think probably we had taken them for granted um, and that was probably why they were um, slated for funding cuts. Mm. Um Yet again, this is just sh- another back down from George Brand. It's showing... You one know, of many, One ben. of many, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, as usual with, with George Brandis, the anti-Midas, as they call him sometimes. Um, <laughs> when is he going to London? Isn't that happening? Well, we are assured that, you know, he might well go to London to be Australia's High Commissioner in London, which would then free up the Attorney General's spot for someone who knows 
uh, I don't know, a little bit about law, for example. Yeah, and process. Yeah, but but we, we don't know about that yet. But anyway, yeah, so George Brandis has announced that the community legal centres will no longer be getting this funding cut. But, I mean, think about the heartache and the, and the kind of disruption that those funding announcements have already caused, even if they haven't yet flowed through. Mm. I think it shows also that in an increasingly unequal society, things like community legal centres are often the the last line of defence for really big social problems. I mean, they've highlighted their role, <coughs> excuse me, they, I mean, they've, they've highlighted their own role in uh, family violence. They're an incredibly important part of Australia's uh, response to family violence, but they, they get into so many other areas, you know, tenancy, for example, yes, for tenants fighting important. off slumlords. Um, you know, these are, these are incredibly important things in our society where because of policy failures in other portfolios, it's often left to community legal centres to try and mop up the damage. So yeah, you're yeah. right, we need more funding for community legal centres, not simply to for them to keep their current low level of funding. Absolutely. And presumably um, some of those legal centres um, based on the decisions that were made uh, a couple of years ago that perhaps they decided to reduce their activities in anticipation of, um, you know, the, the funding that wouldn't be there in the future. Um, and also it's interesting to see that uh, 20, in 2014 there was a recommendation from the Productivity Commission to boost free legal assistance by $200 million a year. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous when the Productivity Commission comes out saying that this is a really critical thing and we're really just restoring a minuscule amount of funding. I mean, it's good that it's been restored, but surely we need to raise the bar. Yes, of course, Amy. I mean, I couldn't Excuse agree more. the pun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think this is one of those things where uh, years of austerity under the coalition government are starting to bite. You know, they've uh, announced cuts in all sorts of areas over the last four years. Um, and that is starting to cause a reduction in services, a genuine austerity for some of these agencies. And, you know, it, let's think about the way they're funded too. Why aren't they simply funded in big, long periods of time rather than on this kind of year-to-year -year basis? That's yes. no way to run any kind of sensible legal centre or any kind of organisation. Or essential service. Yeah. Presumably no one's going to lack or not need the service of a free lawyer. That's right. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're in a way, they're, they're like a hospital or something, you know. We need to keep funding them in perpetuity. Uh, there's a need there. There's going to be, in fact, a growing need. Um, and for the government to hold them hostage in budget negotiations year in, year out, I think is unconscionable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and let's talk about another um, budget item, which has really dropped off the agenda um, for quite a while now. It's uh, the tertiary education sector, um, because Universities Australia have uh, done their own study and look into their sector and suggested that almost $4 billion has been cut from that sector since 2011. Uh, that's a pretty significant funding loss um, and they're concerned that they may not um, be, I guess, avoid cuts in, in this budget. What do you think will happen, Ben? Um, well, there's, there's uh, very real rumours that there will be cuts to university funding in this budget. Um, remember that a few years back, the government tried to cut university funding by 20%. 
and then get the universities to make up the difference by charging students more. That was blocked in the Senate and it never went anywhere. It was one of those sort of zombie measures that the government was never able to, to legislate. Um, so now there's a lot of speculation that the Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, will look to try and deliver some kind of saving in another way, either by cutting university funding directly or by raising the amount of uh, student fees uh, or by tinkering around with hex repayment rates. But somehow or other, the government wants to gouge several billion dollars out of the higher education sector. Um, and as Universities Australia points out, there have in fact been cuts even under the previous Labor government. So in 2013, to help pay for Gonski, the uh, schools reforms, the government actually pay, uh, cut money from the universities, uh, sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, and um, so the universities, although they're doing okay with international students, certainly the top universities, Universities have got some very strong international student enrolments. The regional universities are struggling and the sort of bottom tier universities are also struggling. Mm. Um, so there's inequalities uh, opening up in the university system. And that was actually always one of the strengths of Australian universities, which was that you could go to university in Armidale or you could go to university in suburban Western Sydney and you would get a very good education. Uh, we didn't have that kind of American system of, a, of Ivy League with a, an elite tier of universities and and a whole bunch of also RANs. But um, those inequalities are starting to open up in universities as in the rest of society. Um, and if these cuts follow through, then I, I think there'll be more of that. Well, that is a concerning one. I know that they have been very vocal as well, but um, unfortunately... We, who knows what could happen. Hopefully we'll avoid a 2014 budget because uh, that one was quite dismal. I don't think it'll be as bad as that, obviously, because, you know, that was political suicide for Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott, as it turned out. Well, but they're slightly more clued in in terms of what flies and what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I expect a sort of steady-as-you-go document from Scott Morrison, but there will be some nasty cuts buried in the details. I mean, there always are. And remember that the government has to pay for around about $20 billion in in company tax cuts that they got through last month. So there's a, a fair bit of money that they've got to find and it's almost certain that they'll find it by cutting back on services, um, probably by trying to gouge more money out of welfare recipients. That's been a consistent theme of this government. And yeah, big ticket items like education and health. I mean, how on earth are they really going to claw back $20 billion though, Ben? I mean, it just doesn't make... I mean, presumably they think they might actually receive more revenue if companies grow in the very, very, very long term. But in the short term, they're still going to end up with a significant deficit. And will they still be blaming this on Labor? Oh, well, they always blame the deficit on Labor, even though obviously Labor hasn't been in government since 2013. Um, the deficit is still pretty big, actually. It's about $47 billion. So, um, you know, the government has not got the budget back into black, as they promised. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that revenue has been pretty low. So revenue has not grown as much as the government had hoped it would grow. Um, in particular, company tax receipts haven't been very high. Income taxes has not been growing very high. Uh, part, of, part of this is because wages have not been growing. So people's everyday fortnightly salary pay packets have not been growing very much and so the tax on that hasn't been growing either. 
Uh, I mean, these are long-term structural problems for the Australian economy. You know, we might be entering into what the economists call secular stagnation, which is this kind of state where there's there's a, a certain amount of growth, but there's not that much growth, and inflation is very low. You know, and in this kind of state of the economy, it seems as though it's quite hard to get the economy growing strongly again. And there's all sorts of potential problems down the road as well. So, yeah, a delicate balancing act for Scott Morrison in the May budget. Mm, definitely. Um, hopefully we actually end up starting to deal with these economic issues because, I mean, if you keep putting it off and putting it off, things are going to get really risky, as you say. It's just could end up in a recession. Well, in terms of wages, the government's actually moving in the other direction. I mean, it's looking to slash penalty rates. Mm. So um, that will actually hurt people's pay packets, particularly in um, industries like retail and hospitality. So, you know, that underlines, I think, the fact that um, for certain industries, particularly ones that are vulnerable to tech and to innovation and disruption, like retail, um, you know, wages are not only not growing, wages are falling and work is increasingly precarious. So we've got Amazon coming into Australia about to start up a couple of huge warehouse distribution centres. Now, no one who's looked at this doesn't think that this is going to smash Australian retail, okay? This is going to actually start to put plenty of Australians who work in shops out mm. of work because people are going to shop online and it's going to be cheaper, and so they're not going to go to the shop down the road anymore. And uh, in America, we've seen some pretty devastating uh, hollowing out of the retail sector there. Yeah. Big retail chains like Radio Shack, like uh, JCPenney, some of those big clothing retailers all shutting all of their physical stores. Yes, and very few people actually going out to buy them now because the delivery and turnaround is so fast. Yeah, that's right. So, But um, uh, maybe because Australia Post takes its time, <laughs> often it won't be as effective. Look, I wouldn't count on that. I think there'll be a big effect for Amazon entering the Australian market. Mm. Well, let's all support our local stores, in particular our bookstores. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was record store day last Saturday. So yeah. I hope everyone went down and bought a record at their local record store. But yeah, I mean, I think if you do have a chance to support your local retailers who are part of our community, then that's a really good way to spend your dollar rather than giving it to a giant global tech company like Amazon. Absolutely. Hey, Ben, thank you for coming in on a public holiday and being so generous with your time. Yeah, time for a coffee, I think, Amy. Hell yes, although I couldn't find any cafes actually <laughs> open, so I'm just running on Triple R coffee, which is still all right. It's not the same because I had to make it myself. Thank you and have a wonderful day. I have two extremely special guests who are just amazing. Uh, we're going to be discussing their areas of expertise and how they've managed to be drawn together into one very interesting book called The Honest History Book. And uh, our guests are Professor Joy Demusi, who is a professor of history at the University of Melbourne and, and an ARC laureate, as well as Vikin Babkenyan, who is a, an independent researcher at the Australian Institute for Holocaust and Genocide. So thank you both very much for joining me. Thanks, Amy. Pleasure to, a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, it's absolutely great to have you both, um, especially on Anzac Day. I really uh, wanted to 
grasp this opportunity um, to highlight some of those areas of history as is shown in the book that is just really um, underknown, underfocused on and certainly uh, just as compelling and important as those other stories that we are very familiar with. So um, I'm just going to start with you, uh, Vikan, because uh, I wanted to look at um, a little bit of the background of the history of the uh, Armenian genocide and how it actually came about and I know that um, there's some scholarly uh, I guess debate around just how it did evolve and whether it was um, a build of many factors that culminated in something that was um, quite organic but or whether there was a preconceived um, you know idea that this is the uh-huh. solution and we're going to um, deport the Armenians and then uh, also um, massacre them and lead them on marches but I mean let's go to Turkey or the Ottoman Empire as it was called and uh, the young Turks who were in control of government from 1913 when they um, took it took the government uh, I guess by force by coup what where were we at at that point in terms of um, the Armenians place in Ottoman society and the I guess um, different ethnic uh, conflicts or tensions between um, the Turks and the other uh, ethnic minorities in the Ottoman? Yeah. Well, basically, the Ottoman Empire was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire. But in the 19th century, it began to decline. Um, and so you had territories in the Balkans that slowly um, were taken away from the Ottoman Empire and formed into independent states. So Greece was one of the first countries in the 1820s to, to gain independence from the Ottoman Empire. But in 1912 and 1913, you had the Balkan Wars, where Turkey lost quite a lot of um, territory in the Balkans, and uh, there was an influx of Muslim refugees that came into what is now Turkey. And so the rulers, the young Turks, who... um, It was basically a military dictatorship, but in 1913, they had taken over the government in a um, a violent coup. They um, envisaged a new homogenous Turkey, where, um, where there were to be no more non-Muslims in that empire. So they became a bit more radicalized. And in 1914, uh, the Russians pressured Turkey to sign uh, a reform agreement to reform a lot of the areas where the Armenians lived in the eastern provinces, to give them more equality, um, places in administration. And that kind of, the, the, the leadership there, uh, the young Turks, began to fear that the Armenians might follow suit of what was happening in the Balkans and one day uh, you know, become independent. So when World War I began and, and there was the impending Anzac landing on the 25th of April, uh, the young Turks uh, were really, they felt threatened and it was an accumulation of, uh, they were radicalized and that's basically when the genocide began. So it was basically an attempt to eliminate uh, an ethnic minority who the Armenians were the actual, the native people of what is now Eastern Turkey. So that's the kind of context uh, of the genocide. Yes, and also, I mean, th- although the Armenian population was somewhat dispersed throughout the Ottoman Empire, was it largely located in Anatolia? Okay, so there's a misconception of the word Anatolia. Anatolia is actually Western Turkey. Um, east of Anatolia was historic Armenia. And so in in historic Armenia, which is now eastern Turkey, that's where the the bulk of the Armenians lived, on the Armenian highlands. But in what is 
Anatolia, which is Western Turkey, you had uh, Armenian populations scattered throughout there as well, um, particularly places like Afyon Karahisar, um, which is in Western Turkey. One third of the population of that town was Armenian, for example. And in Constantinople, you had a couple of hundred thousand Armenians that were there. So you had a large population of Armenians in territory that was outside historic Armenia, but scattered throughout the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we're looking at, I guess, the evolution of this, um, this these atrocities, I mean, yeah. they did uh, begin somewhat before April the 24th, although there was, um, as you say, one uh, particular example where the intellectuals were rounded up and uh, very few of them survived. But prior to that, what um, were the features of um, the beginnings of what looked like ethnic cleansing and then turned into genocide? Okay, so when... Turkey joined the war uh, in 1914. Uh, tens of thousands of Armenian men were conscripted into the Ottoman army. And the majority of them were put in, placed into labor battalions. And so they weren't given arms. And, and they were sort of massacred piecemeal. Uh, and some of that began before April 24. But also in the beginnings of April, there were areas, for example, in southern Turkey where the, Tur- the Ottoman rulers feared that there might be an enemy invasion. So they weren't entirely sure if the Anglo-British forces were going to land at Gallipoli or in southeastern Turkey, not far from on a Mediterranean near Antioch. So they started to deport Armenians from those areas. And many Armenians actually died during those deportations. These began before April 24. And also two weeks before the Anzac landings, uh, about 22,000 mainly Greeks were deported from the Gallipoli Peninsula and scattered um, within Turkey, and, and many of them also died. So you had some features that were beginning before the Anzac landing. But when the Anzac landings occurred on the 25th of April, it was then that the deportations and massacres became more systematic and more large scale. So if we're looking at, um, I guess, the intersection between these two events, uh, one that is very well known and one that's far less uh, known, well, it was actually quite well known in Australia at the time, but now currently is not known that much. Uh, But if we're looking at... I guess, the place of the Armenians within Turkey and the, the way that they were perceived by uh, particularly Talat Pasha or the three Pashas, but Talat being the Minister for the Interior, he describes them in his uh, posthumous memoirs uh, using terms like revolting, barbarous, treacherous, disloyal, um, in, yeah. in terms of the Armenians who are fighting alongside the Russians. Um, can you explain that, uh, I guess, skirmish or conflict that whereby uh, the Armenians were, I guess, portrayed as, as, an, as an internal enemy? Yes. So what happened was, at, at the time uh, during of World War I, you had Armenians in the Russian Empire and you had Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. So, uh, so you had about 2 million in the Russian Empire and about 2.5 million in, in the Ottoman Empire. And just like in the Ottoman Empire, in Russia, there were many Armenians who were conscripted in the Russian army, but the majority of them were fighting on the Eastern Front against the Germans. But the Russians did agree to have about 10,000 Armenian volunteers who fought with the Russians uh, as they started uh, a battle with the Turks in in late 1914 and early 1915. Now, those volunteers, uh, while fighting the Ottomans, uh, may have committed some small-scale atrocities uh, against Muslims, but that was exaggerated, and all the Armenians of the Ottoman Empire were painted as being kind of these rebels. Uh, And so... But there, at the same time, there are Armenians in the Ottoman army fighting 
in Palestine, in Syria, and even at Gallipoli, um, fighting for the Turks loyally for the empire that they were part of. But that was just used as, as a way to incite hatred amongst Turks, that the Armenians themselves, or all the Armenians, were treacherous and needed to be eradicated. Yes, and in wartime, um, certainly in something such as the Great War, where it was such a dramatic and large uh, conflict, where there was a huge threat um, perceived by the Ottomans, it's easy to create an outgroup or an other um, within such a diverse empire. Um, Before I bring in Joy, I just want to um, focus on the Australian uh, male soldiers who were in Turkey or the Ottoman at the time um, and uh, and their, I guess, experience and interaction with the Armenians uh, who were being persecuted at the time. Because I know that there are um, some interesting stories around Australians intervening um, in the process of, of genocide and the massacres. Could you share with us um, one of the, the most prominent stories or interesting stories around that? Yeah, I'll, I'll mention two. So the first one was as the Allied, uh, as the Australian soldiers were advancing on the Palestine-Syria front, uh, many of them came across Armenian deportees or survivors of the death marches, and they were being and they were rescued. And there's one um, Camelier, Arthur Mills, who carried a four-year-old Armenian child that he had rescued in um, Jordan uh, to Jerusalem. So that was one interaction where Armenians were being liberated as the Allies were advancing on the Palestine-Syria front. But the other more interesting one is the Australian prisoners of war. And not much is known in Australia, or it's talked about, but there are over 200 <coughs> Anzac prisoners of war that were held in Turkey during the war. And most of them, in fact, I've got the memoirs of most of them, and they all mention the Armenian massacres, and the majority were held in abandoned Armenian homes and churches. And they would document that uh, there were Armenians that were here and that were deported and now we're living in, in their houses and churches. Some even witnessed the, the deportations in Afyon Karahisar. So um, the most famous prisoner of war was Thomas White, who was captured in Baghdad. He, while he was marched from Baghdad all the way to the interior of Turkey, he witnessed uh, Armenian uh, deportees and also the graves of many Armenians as he passed through villages. So you have this strong connection between the Australian prisoners of war what they witnessed and what they documented. But sadly, it's, it's never mentioned in, in the narrative. No, that have on it isn't. And I mean, where is it documented and why haven't we uh, mentioned it? Uh, because our knowledge of World War I is strongly influenced by our current relations with the government of Turkey, who denies all this uh, and puts kind of pressure in, in many ways for us to, for Australians not to learn about what had happened at that time. Yes, so well, I mean, there's still a great deal of um, controversy around the issue and denial that a genocide occurred um, by many people, including Talat Pasha um, in afterwards in 1919, I believe. And yeah. uh, I mean, there are figures that suggest that around 1.2 million to 1.5 million um Died, Armenians died, and uh, yeah. and that two hundred thousand of them were resettled, um, and these were people who they hoped would. Um, 
I guess, blend back into the Turkish culture and were able to be saved or changed um, and branded as Turkish and removing their um, Armenian culture and heritage and um, Christian uh, beliefs. I mean, this is... It's not just around um, the deaths, although they are brutal, and in in particular the death marches um, were so horrific but and and hangings but also when you're looking about um the cultural aspects uh the heritage that's been destroyed i mean how significant was that and is that That, today that is very significant because hundreds of thousands of armenian women and children were taken during those deportations and islamized and in fact the government set up orphanages um where they turkified so an armenian christian would come in and they'd give him a muslim name and they were not allowed to speak about their past or their heritage. And one of these orphanages was in Lebanon, and it was actually liberated by the Allies in late 1918. And we've got a book about you know, what had happened there. So it's quite well documented. But there, there are many um, Turks today who are coming out saying that my grandmother's Armenian and so on. But they don't have the freedom yet in Turkey. There's still quite a bit of persecution against non-Muslims in Turkey today. And, and many of them don't free, feel free to, to come out and be confident with their identity. So assimilation was part of the genocide. But another part of the genocide was the destruction of Armenian cultural heritage. So Armenian communal properties, over 2,000 churches, were basically transferred to the Ottoman state. Many of them, many of them were destroyed. Um, some of them still survive, but they're used as public toilets um, and as museum, uh, prisons and so on. And, but there's no effort in Turkey today at sort of a transitional justice of giving that those buildings back to the Armenian community and, and, and so on. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the, just finally, one of the latest developments um, that we've seen from one of the foremost scholars in this area is uh, Tana Assam. Is that how to pronounce his name? Acham. Acham. And um, I know that it's been covered in the New York Times, but could you share with us just recently what's, uh, what's developed in this field? Basically, during the post-war period, immediately after World War I, there was no denial, even in the new Turkish government, that a genocide had occurred. Uh, And there were trials that were held in Istanbul uh, where leaders of the Young Turks were convicted for being complicit in in the mass extermination of the Armenians. Now, those trial records, when, when Kemal Ataturk established his new republic, have gone missing. So we only know details of those Records through what was published by the official newspapers of Turkey at the time. But now in Jerusalem, in an archive, because uh, boxes of those uh, boxes were shipped to Jerusalem about 50, 60 years ago that have never been looked at of archival material from, from Constantinople, Istanbul. Uh, and he found a document, an original document from one of the young Turk leaders that was ordering the, the extermination of the Armenians. So it's kind of like a smoking gun that has been found. But of course, uh, there'll be those who would deny it, um, that it's not original and so on. But the trials did take, take place during uh, 1919, 1920. That's well documented. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Vikan. I'll come back to you and I'll bring you back in um, in in about oh, a few minutes. I'm, gonna, I'm bringing yeah. Joy um, in now to, I guess, 
tease out the rest of this story, which is um, largely on the home front and what was done there. Um, and if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Vikan Babkenyan, who is the in- an independent researcher at the Australian Institute for Holocaust and Genocide, and now Professor Joy Demusi, who is a, a professor of history at the University of Melbourne and an ARC laureate. Now, Joy, thank you for joining us and being so patient too. <laughs> Pleasure, Amy, no problem. Um, it's just wonderful to have you because you've written uh, a chapter and, and Vikan's written a chapter and, and you have in this book, uh, The Honest History Book. In particular, you've been focusing on the contribution of women in the Great War, Australian women, and the various roles that they played. And I mean, part of that was a humanitarian role. Um, another part was a, a pacifist role, um, you know, rallying for peace. And then another was a key role in the conscription debates. So, I mean, looking at, I guess, the first tie into what we've just been discussing, mm-hmm. which is the um, the genocide in Armenia or in the Ottoman Empire of the Armenians, what, um, what role did Australian women play in this, um, I guess, humanitarian effort? And not just um, here, but I guess what, what impacts did they have over in uh, Syria and over in the Ottoman Empire? So um, one of the uh, ways in which the Anzac uh, story overshadows everything else that happened uh, is the way that story in large part writes out the contribution of women um, and other groups, but particularly women. Um, So in the last... um, really two decades, historians have really tried to identify the role of women in the multifaceted ways you're describing of of their engagement with the Great War. So um, that encompassed many activities, as as you're suggesting there, Amy. So um, in terms of the genocide itself, uh, there were many women during and after the First World War who became intimately and actively involved in the humanitarian effort, particularly around women and children. Um, some of them got in, were, were, that route was, caved, was paved through the League of Nations. And so um, women like Jessie Webb uh, were very vocal at the League of Nations after the First World War in identifying the issue of the genocide and particularly the plight of women and children. Uh, during the genocide and immediately after it. Um, And then there were other women as well through various women's organisations like the National Council of of Women and other women's groups um, who travelled overseas uh, and engaged with the humanitarian efforts um, there. So, you know, it became... It captured the imagination of a number of women who um, became immersed in humanitarianism more broadly after World War I. um, And... Often that focused around children. So the other organisation was the Save the Children uh, Fund, which was set up in 1919 and attracted a number of Australian women, notably Cecilia John, who became the um, key representative of the of the fund in Australia, at least in that period. So um, women, and particularly those political women, um, and anti-war women and pacifists start to really mobilise around this issue. So just connecting up with the story Vikan has described for us, um, there was a great link during and after the war in terms of humanitarianism, in terms of women's role, um, and in terms of um, women's engagement with with this story, um, which, again, is, is not known, and it's not known because I think so much of our public knowledge of the First World War has been dominated by the Anzac story, important enough as the 
uh, Gallipoli Landing is, it's written. It's unfortunately meant that other other narratives have been effectively written out of our knowledge. Um, you mentioned. Um, the conscription issue, and of course, that is the other major contribution women made uh, on the home front, at least during the Great War. And in my essay in that book, I very much frame this contribution in terms of leadership. And I think using that word is really important. Um, we know women were there. We know they actively uh, agitated for the yes and the no vote. But I have couched this in terms of the way women actually set the agenda and set the debate and took leadership over but in both camps, actually. Yeah. So looking um, at the two women, Jessie Webb and Cecilia John um, Webb being on the yes side, um, John on the no, they really were incredibly influential, I think, in setting the parameters of how the debate was undertaken, not just, you know, issuing pamphlets, important as that was, but actually debating about... Uh, what conscription meant, what conscription meant for women and Australian society uh, in general, um, why Webb was for it and why John was against it. And they constructed arguments. So I think it's really important to, to see it in that way. Um, and that really puts women um, right at the centre of the debates. Absolutely. Well, they were, weren't they? I mean, they were giving speeches and being great orators themselves. Mm. Indeed, indeed. So women were really prominent, um, on, like I said, on both sides of the debate of conscription um, and attracted um, the attention of returned soldiers who often attacked them in public. Uh, so we have many instances of women being violently attacked by returned men um, when they when they spoke um, to, to several, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so um, women were really, really involved in, in, in the debate. I mean, the, the jury's out on how and why, you know, why Australians voted in the way they did. Of course, Australia's one of the very few countries that did not introduce conscription um, and that made it quite distinctive and uh, quite, you know, very interesting for that, that we are very one of the very few New Zealand sent conscripts, the British, of course, other, other major countries sent a, a conscript army, but Australia did not. And I think, again, you know, focusing on ANZAC only uh, takes us away from some of these really interesting questions that made Australia distinctive in other ways during World War One, and that is that it did not send a conscript army, it was a volunteer army. Um, and so um, not conscription not going through um, really opens up a whole range of interesting questions about why Australians voted as they did. And I think women played a major role in that. Yeah. I, I think even if women were pro-war and many of them were supportive of the war, they were not supportive of sending men to a, a, in a conscript army. Absolutely, because as we know, just because um, you were anti-conscription doesn't mean you were anti-war. You weren't necessarily a pacifist, um, although there were women who were. Uh, but how large a, I guess, proportion of the Australians were pacifists within this war? Oh, it would have been a very small percentage, yeah. a very small percentage, uh, and it was uh, confined to um, women like Cecilia John, Vita Goldstein, some of the early feminists uh, who set up the Women's Peace Army. Um, some um, obviously there was a Quaker movement in Australia, and the Quakers were very uh, strong in that, in um, you know, pushing that position as well. Um, so it wasn't a big proportion of the population, but they became incredibly influential through this anti-conscription campaign um, and garnered enormous support around around it through you know from the wider section of the community. So I think you could say that that message got out through conscription, um, and and we. Women were really central to it, uh, I think. 
Well, I mean, we forget, even in modern time, that women actually are half the population, sometimes a bit over, um, and that they're not passive um, humans. They are actively involved in all aspects of life, uh, even in the early 1900s. And not only were women active on the home front, but they were also active overseas. And there were women who were nurses, who were doctors even, or assisting doctors in surgeries, um, as you might have seen in some of the dramas that we've recently seen. It's re-energising the idea that women were took a very strong role and were very brave and courageous um, on, the, on the Western front. Uh, what was the role of women overseas, Australian women in particular? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So we had the nurses who went over and, and doctors as well who served uh, who, and who volunteered. Despite great protestation and, and you know, men you know, arcing up about it. A- absolutely. Um, and, you know, women volunteered in a whole range of capacities. Um, but the, uh, the role of nurses was central to the Australian war effort uh, and as it was right throughout um, the Allies' effort. Uh, and, and again, I mean, we have seen some popular representations of that, which is fantastic and really brings out that message to a wider audience. Um, but, you know, some of the individual cases are, are, are very striking. And and I think, if, you know, if we're reflecting on an, an earlier question you raised about how we might think differently about ANZAC or celebrate it differently, it is to bring in the contribution of a whole range of groups, women included, in there, in the military effort, um, and to identify that this was not just a a war that obviously obviously involved the sacrifice and the tragic loss of men's lives, but that um, it tore apart Australian society on the home front. It um, it meant women were involved in a range of um, occupations and activities that they weren't involved in before or actually after immediately after. Yeah. So the war is a unique, really unique period in Australian history. Um, so I think there are many histories and stories to be told that are not exclusive to Gallipoli. And I guess the other thing is um, World War One is a very complex uh, history. Uh, it starts obviously in 1914. Um, but during the course of the war, uh, many political, social, cultural events unfold. And I guess the current, our current knowledge of it is reduced to one event. And I think one of the losses of that is that we don't really understand the complexity of the war. And I suppose it's a plea for some, you know, some old-fashioned, you know, history to be taught around why the war started, how it emerged, what happened, um, in a broader sense. So, you know, looking at Australia in the global, in the in the in the in the international context as well, we often see our our part simply around Gallipoli and and only that. But it's such a complex history, and I think that's um, I think that's a real loss to our our um, knowledge around the war itself. So, I'd like to see you know us moving beyond some of these narrow military battles and and contextualising them and understanding what why we were there and how it came to be and the women's role as and other other groups that um, Indigenous Australians, of course, as well, and and that's been a story that's been researched in recent times, and their role in in the war effort and and the discrimination and um, you know uh, obstacles they faced as well in in that in, in that space. So I, I think we need um, you know the plea is really for a bro- a, war, a wider history and understanding of that period. Absolutely, I'll bring in Vicken in just a moment, but. 
in terms of um, coming back to women's contribution and I guess the really uh, leadership that they took, can you um, give an example that you think really highlights um, the contribution that women made and maybe contrary to a stereo- the gender stereotype of women at that time? Well, I mean, there are many women one could think of at that time who took the initiative. Um, I I guess um, I centre much of my essay around Cecilia John and I suppose I would have to identify her. She was a pacifist, she was a feminist, she was anti-war, she was a humanitarian. She, uh, as I say, uh, became influential later in Save the Children Fund. She broke every sort of stereotype of a woman and what her role was in society at that time. She did not marry, she did not have children. Um, She was politically committed. uh, And I think her story is one that needs to be brought to the fore to identify the, the the courage as well that women showed. She was imprisoned a few times. She sang um, the song, I Didn't Raise My Son To Be A Soldier, which was banned. Um, so she made a great impression and imprint on the debate uh, at the time and, and against war, you know, not just against conscription. So I think there are women like that who need to be part of our national story. They do. And... And that now brings us to what you've just been discussing, which is an inclusive version of history and um, the Great War and Australia's role in it. I mean, we we have this idea that Australia is somewhat exceptional and that our exceptionalism um, can be demonstrated in the Gallipoli landing where uh, Australians showed their unique bravery, which was recognised by uh, the British. And, uh, you know, we demonstrated that we Australians were different from the New Zealanders, maybe slightly closer to the New Zealanders than the British. But I mean, all of this uh, national identity that's caught up in Gallipoli and the um, masculinization of our memorialization of Anzac, uh, where, like, where can we go from this point, given that there is such a strong um, ingrained common conception about what we are remembering on Anzac Day? How do we bring inclusiveness and a really nuanced understanding of what actually happened back into Anzac Day? Well, I think it was General Peter Cosgrove who said after the um, tsunami that occurred in Southeast Asia that Australian national identity is one of you know, compassion and generosity. So during World War I, Australia showed a lot of generosity and compassion to victims of the Armenian genocide. It was the first major international humanitarian relief effort in Australia's history. There were committees set up all over Australia, there were fundraising events, um, and they even uh, set up an orphanage for the for 1,700 Armenian orphans in Lebanon uh, in 1922. So generosity and compassion is also part of our identity, apart from just heroism on the battlefield. So I think we need a, a more inclusive look at our identity that was formed during World War I and, and realise that heroism is only one part of that. Certainly, and also that heroism isn't confined to men. Yeah, that's right. Because women were actually at the forefront of the humanitarian relief effort um, in the post-war period. So, for example, the New South Wales Armenian Relief Committee was made up of just women. Um, So it was, yeah, they were the driving force behind um, the relief effort as well. And I'm sure had a, a huge impact. And if they hadn't done that, what would have been the result? That's right. Now, I also have to mention there were two Australian women who were relief workers in post-war Turkey uh, between 1919 and 1922. 
who helped save uh, many Armenians as well. One of them was Isabel Hutton, who was a former nurse for the AIF in Palestine. And the other one was Leila Priest from Tasmania, who was in Western Turkey um, in, in between 1919 and 1922. So these are women who were actually risking their lives to save civilians in post-war World War I that we know very little about and who were not um, commemorated at all in Australia. Well, let's take the opportunity to commemorate them now. <laughs> I, I think that's really wonderful um, to hear. And perhaps that's another point that we can continue to develop over this period as historians to really start drawing out these stories and making them well known. And I know that you and Joy certainly have been working on this um, a great deal. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah, go for it. Um, much of what we know about the other side of Gallipoli is shaped by a Turkish nationalist narrative. Uh, so not many Australians know that when they landed at Gallipoli, two-thirds of the first units they met were actually Syrian Arabs because the Ottoman army reflected the multicultural aspect of the Ottoman Empire. But, but generally, in the narrative, it's, it's as though we had gone to war against Turkey um, and, and all those who died on the other side were Turks. But in fact, um, there were Turks, Armenians, Greeks, uh, Kurds, Arabs, they were all they all died fighting for the Ottoman Empire. But that narrative is not um, used in Australia. It's more like we went to war against Turkey and, and those on the other side who died were, were all Turks. Yes. So that needs to change as well, to be more inclusive. Absolutely, and to see um, that, well, they weren't a, a homogenous group for sure. I'm sure um, right. we've seen developments more recently that, that has become a narrowing of Turkey um, in their culture and their identity, as you've said. Um, and Joy, I mean, looking at the history wars, I would call it a war because in the probably the last five to ten years, this debate around Anzac has really heated up. <laughs> yes, it has, it, indeed. And it gets people very um, emotional. It's an emotive topic. And I want to draw out the ideology for a moment. I know that's quite difficult, but then if we come back to, well, first of all, there are two sides, um, and to, to simplify things, but there are the side that says that it's been commercialised and militarised and... Um, hijacked for a nationalistic purposes and then there's the other side which suggests that that side is actually treacherous for even um, suggesting that patriotism is a bad thing and that they are then unpatriotic for suggesting that Australians weren't unique and special and you know forged at the shores of Gallipoli um, which we won't even get into because that's a big debate but there are those two sides. Yeah. Where is the middle? Because I feel that I've been residing in the middle yeah. and there hasn't been a lot well, left. The middle, I think, is um, you've got... I do think you have to uncouple this notion that the Australian nation was born at Gallipoli, simply. Um, sure, it generated enormous patriotism and nationhood and sense of, um, you know, Australian identity and so on. But... There was a prehistory to Gallipoli and a post-history to Gallipoli, which shaped our nation even more. And if you look at the prehistory to Gallipoli, it is about Australia as um, introducing many social reforms, the old age pension, um, social security reforms and so on, that, that gave Australia an identity as progressive and a reformist nation. Um, uh, well, that's all kind of forgotten in terms of what 
the, how the nation was constructed. There is, of course, federation, which doesn't quite have all the glamour and uh, excitement of a war. No. But, uh, <laughs> in fact, was when the Australian nation was formed in 1901. So I think the middle ground is to say it's demonstrable that the nation of Australia was not formed exclusively at one that moment in time. And it's a complex, uh, ever-changing, fluid construct. But in recent years, you know, uh, it's been identified as beginning and being constructed at that moment, and it's just simply not the case. Um, and by doing that, then you do exclude all these other uh, issues and other groups because, you know, there are only a small number of men, white men, who were there at that time. Um, so they then, you know, uh, have the narrative built around their, their exploits and their achievements and so on and so forth. So I'd say the middle ground is to say the Australian nation was uh, constructed and nationhood was constructed at different times and different periods of time throughout Australian history. The land equilibrium is obviously one moment in time, but it's not the only one. Um, and as we're saying, women played a massive role in that. Women got the vote early in, in, in Australia. Um, that created a whole sense of what Australian, um, the Australian state could do and what it did do. And it's an Australia as a nation uh, of, of voting women and so on and so forth. I mean, we haven't even touched on Indigenous history here, but the whole, the whole place of Indigenous, um, the Indigenous experience in the way the Australian state was constructed and, and the, you know, the importance of that story to that. History. It's more complex, but I think for politicians and for the media and for other other groups, distilling it down to one event is really easy. And of course, it's it's gold for the um, the advertisers, uh, and they can distill it down to one event, market around that, and say Australia was born then. Well, it wasn't. So I, I'd sort of that would be the tone I'd set today. Um, not, not of course, ignoring the importance of that event for a whole range of reasons, um, but that we have to look more broadly to understand how the Australian nation was and is being constructed. Mm, I couldn't agree more <laughs> with your mm. your conclusion. And just finally, when we're looking at the average Australian person who goes to the Anzac, you know, dawn ceremony or their local ceremony and they're wanting to remember the people who passed away, maybe their grandfather fought in, you know, World War II like mine who was a, a pilot, a captain, um, you know, in the RAF. Um, there are people who have very personal links to it and it's often really difficult for them to... Um, I mean, it gets caught up in that narrative, you know. They're, they're really one and the same um, in the way that it's described and, and remembered. How do we just bring it back to something that's about personal remembrance and about something that's really meaningful to mm. humans? Because a lot of people did sacrifice their lives or commit heroic acts, both men and women, at that time. And whether it was a right or wrong thing to be involved in, people still died from it and, and that had huge effects, you know, lasting well into the end of the 20th century. How do we then, I mean, you know, I guess reconcile those two points? It's really important, I think, to stress that when we reflect on the need to be critical of war and its impact, we're not um, obviously reducing this to a personal attack. But I think some people feel it is. Um, 
I think uh, we need to disentangle that. I think any f- most families throughout the 20th century lost someone in one of the world wars or both, um, given the, the, the total wars that they were. So we've all experienced that in our families. We all have it in our family history and we can, you know, embrace and remember and, and um, mourn that loss. But I don't think that should blind us to the tragedy of war and and its um, its devastation, not just for the immediate um, moment, but then as it reverberated for generations, and we still see the impact of war um, in families after, well after the event has taken place. So it's one thing to sort of criticise um, the state, um, but I, you know, I think we all have a right to mourn our our families and our passing of mem- you know members who suffered in war, but that that really should not blunt our critique of of how you know governments do send countries to war. It's Absolutely. still happening as we speak. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the biggest challenge, and something that we should take up is mm-hmm. to be able to distinguish between the two, um, because yeah, I guess it's the the advertising and the um, the way in which the narrative has been shaped that mm-hmm. does tend to push them together. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you, Joy and Vikin, for for being so generous and really such a thought provoking discussion. My pleasure, Amy. Pleasure. Yeah. Um, And have a a great day today. And um, I look forward to seeing what more uh, research and scholarly work that you do in this area because it's just uh, wonderful. And if anyone wants to check out um, Joy and Vikin's contributions, they're in the Honest History book. They've also um, contributed a great more uh, in journal articles and other books. Um, So do check check them out. Uh, You can see um, their names and the references to what they've done on our social media. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. And uh, as promised, I have with me in the studio Meredith Penman and James Evans. Uh, They're from Bell Shakespeare and they're currently in the production Richard III, though I must also mention that James is not just an actor, he's also associate director of the company. So um, both people here are multi-talented and uh, really it's just wonderful to have you here. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us, Amy. No, it's my pleasure to have um, you on, on Anzac Day, in the studio, because um, this play I got to see on opening night, Mm. and uh, at the end, as you would know, um, there was a... In immediate unison um, standing ovation. Yeah. It was quite phenomenal to be part of, let alone witness, and I'm mm. sure for you guys it must be pretty rewarding to see that people really dig the show, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 that's right, and we never take that for granted because it is so rare, especially in Australian theatre, I think, um, to, to have that response. But... It's a different quality. This show kind of does something different to an audience, I feel, with Kate's performance. She she takes us through so many sequences and I think the audience becomes disarmed through the process of the show because we go through intense satire and comedy and tragedy, deep tragedy, and all, all along the way we're with Richard and she brings us 
to this really sort of, she sort of lands on the, on the shore at the end of it in a very vulnerable position. And I feel like the, the audience is in that position as well. Definitely. Mm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it because I agree. It's surprising um, with a history play, you think of them as fairly dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the reputation. Yeah. So I my expectation was perhaps it might be very content heavy in the political machinations, mm. but less about a human story. But the I guess the humour that you're mentioning there is just so well played by all of the cast. Um, you're constantly engaged and, I mean, it's it's very rare in a, a Shakespeare play to just get what they're saying immediately. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like you are speaking actual regular 21st century English. Oh, great. That's, that's good. That's, that's the best that's compliment what we can get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it's true. And that's why I was gobsmacked, I guess, for the mm. whole time where I was like, wow, I, I just get all of this. And then when reading back the script, mm. you then think, my God, um, how would I possibly just read this out and make it sound as you make it sound? It's just a, an absolute skill. So congratulations. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. No worries. So I <laughs> want to talk about Kate, first of all, because mm-hmm. she is Richard. Yep. And um, I had a, a chance to chat with Kate at the end of the show and mm. she was saying, um, well, there are many interesting aspects to her performance of Richard. Number one, the obvious one, she's a woman. Um, but also that she... Um, has a well, she found out by DNA that she's actually related to Richard yes, the Third. That's right. Yeah, yeah. her mum, her mum called her up one day apparently and said, uh, "Oh, look, you know, the, the, these uh, we've found out through DNA testing and through various things that you know we're directly related to Richard back through the generations." So, um, and and Kate also will say that she feels a connection with the character due to the, the scoliosis that they both share. Um, Which is almost identical in yes, formation. That's yeah, right. When they, when they uncovered the bones in that car park, mm. she cried apparently because she recognised the spine as her own spine and she understood the pain that he was in. Yeah, mm. yeah that's right. It's an amazing ability to be able to empathise. Yeah, and that empathy comes through obviously in the performance and, uh, you know, we've all seen multiple Richard III's. I've seen Richard III played as a really violent, bullying psychopath, like angry the whole time. Mm. I've seen him played as a just a goofball um, comedian clown. Uh, I think what Kate brings to it is just such a well-rounded version of all of those plus the empathy mm. and you really see why Richard is the way he is through her performance. Yeah, absolutely. It brings out the complexity of humanity that mm. is within Richard. Yep. I mean, I constantly was... Um, questioning my empathy towards sure, Richard. Sure, yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're constantly brought up with his um, his dismissing of women as just kind of either his chess pieces to move around on a board yep. for his own end okay. or completely an irritant, just mm. something that's annoying and yep. disturbing. Um, mm. Or, you know, he also his, I guess, political, his very cold political manoeuvrings of, mm. well, I should be king. How am I going to get there? Yeah. And um, and there's one great, well, there's many great scenes, but let's just look at one, um, which is towards the beginning we see Lady Anne mm. and Richard mm. and uh, the, the body, which is covered in this huge blanket of blood and everything. And it, was it Edward's body? Henry. The king. Henry, yeah, that's yeah. right. Her husband body. was the, it was Edward who, yeah. Yeah. So Henry's body 
you covered. And obviously Richard is the one who is um, behind this yeah. and he's caused the downfall of her husband who mm. she actually liked because she thought he was virtuous. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably rare back then to have a, you know, a husband that you, you actually like. Well, I, think, I think you're right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he's then suggesting, oh, actually I love you, you know, and you mm. are the one for me and, uh, you know, I may be completely evil but with you, you, you is what makes me... Good. Yeah, it's a problematic scene. I mean, Gosh. the good thing is that Meredith has played that role as well in a previous production. So yeah. maybe you can talk about that. Gosh. How do you? How you even? How do you even? How do you achieve that scene? I mean, oh. it seems almost impossible. Yeah, it's quite obscene, really. You see it on paper, and it doesn't make sense. The mathematics are just horrendous. Mm. But um, as an actor, you sort of have to cast that aside and be on the floor and in the moment and. Luckily, Richard is always cast as one, one, you know an extraordinarily charming person. Yeah. Kate mm. is, she's very charming, but also yes. deeply good. So you sort of go with her, um, and she worked. They worked very hard on this particular scene because they knew it was the hinge on which this hot, this production would rest, because it's the production sort of pushes up the 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 role of the women so so greatly that mm. we don't want to undercut what Lady Anne's motivations are mm. but what Rose Riley brings to the role is this uh, extraordinary psychology of the spectrum of grief and love yeah. um which she brought very early into mm. the production um and <laughs> luckily Kate has had this experience where she worked in a um in a in funeral, a funeral home. home. Yeah. Oh, wow. And she said in her time there, she, she'd she seen more sex happen in that place than <laughs> ever anywhere else. Really? Yeah, and that's the thing that oh death gosh. brings to you, this sort of intense vibrancy. Um, and that's the, the position that Rose puts herself in where she's in such a huge uh, rage with this character mm. that it... it tips over onto the other end of the spectrum, which I don't think we can understand, but you, if you put yourself in that place, then maybe that can happen. Mm. But also Richard does that too. Everything that he says to her is reduced to intense black or intense white. There's no grey area for Richard. Mm. So if you enter into his worldview, you're in a very dangerous position. Yeah, and I mean, what he's saying was very compelling. You found yourself almost believing yeah, that right. maybe he really does care for her. Yeah, yeah and right. maybe she could be the only person who could redeem him, yeah. which is, I mean, that, that works on so many people. It does. But then he turns to the audience almost and just switches like oh, yep. immediately and it's just so amazing, like yeah. the pathology behind it. yeah. Yeah, so so and Shakespeare's written an extraordinarily charming character, and really, um, I think it's Shakespeare's kind of first big hit play. It's it was really popular during Shakespeare's time, and we know that because it was published five or six times during even during Shakespeare's own lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what he's brought is is a character that makes you, the audience, complicit in in the journey, and so you know exactly what he's up to, and he doesn't try and pretend with you, the audience. He says, "You see what I did," and now. I'm I'm going to do something else as well. Come along with me. Mm. So that empathy is built in from the beginning, but also complicity in, uh, you know, the audience feels like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm part of this story. I'm part of this journey. I let this happen mm. <laughs> in a way. Mm. Absolutely. Well, you're kind of just egging him on, wanting yes. to see what happens because yep, there's right. this twisted interest. Will he get there and what yeah. will he be like and will what's his downfall? Mm. What's his weakness? What is his weakness? What is Richard's weakness? Uh, I think there are there are many. I think Richard's <laughs> um, 
but but I think th- the main thing that this production brings out in Richard is that he has a vulnerability. He can't trust anyone. He he, f- as a child, was uh, in Kate's words deliberately unloved. Mm. His mother makes very clear that she hates him and that he's, you know, you made the earth my hell and you know, all, I rue the hour that ever thou wast born. Mm. Um, so I think what that means is that Richard can never actually really open up and be vulnerable and and allow people in to his life and therefore he's alone and that's what he meditates on at the end of the play and in our production, I Am Myself Alone is, is a line from... Um, uh, a, a, an earlier play, King Henry VI, Part Three, but it really encapsulates what Richard feels about himself and why ultimately he will be destroyed. Yeah, yeah. The the, the notion that his tragic weakness, you know, is that he he has not experienced love. He's never been given that in his lifetime. So therefore, any action that he takes in the world is strangely just a it's, it's geometry. Mm. The, the, the heights he has to scale to get he, where he wants to go doesn't actually in his brain have a, a human impact. Mm. They're just impediments that are like stones yeah, as opposed not to like humans. real human beings, yeah. 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 yeah, it's all a game of strategy. Mm. Yes, that's right, mm. yeah. Which and, uh, which and then with all of Shakespeare's great leaders, at the end they always reflect on, oh, what, what was the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I did all of that. I killed all those people. It happens in the Scottish play. It happens in the Henry's. And then, and now, what have I got? I've got nothing. I've got no friends. I've got no no one who loves me, mm. and and I'm going to die. The emptiness so of power. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the emptiness of power. Shakespeare meditates on it again and again and again. Yeah, and I mean, let's look at some of the loss that's experienced because um, Meredith, you play Queen Elizabeth, mm. and it's quite um, astounding to comprehend what your character must be going through, mm-hmm. particularly um, towards the end where there's a scene with Richard yourself and um, the Queen Mother, who's like the, I guess, matriarch, mm. who's Richard's mother. I mean, that's a very intense scene because you, you get to a point um, near one of the armchairs where you're both head to head having this really close, intense argument or um, I guess you're really just taking him down. I mean, what was it like to play that scene and what is your character really going through? Yeah, good question. Um, it's an interesting proposition because I feel like um, Shakespeare condenses time so extraordinarily. Yeah. And as an actor, you feel, how can I possibly go through all of these emotions and intense, just mm. the, the ideas that are contained in a 10-minute scene? But you you have to allow yourself to do that, I think. Um, so, yeah, I lose my child who Richard has killed. Then I get um, sort of put in my place by Queen Margaret. Uh, and then I witness this extraordinary curse from Richard's, Richard's mother to him. And I'm I'm all for that. But there's something that I think, for my interpretation, that sort of clangs in my brain because she... Her oath to herself is as a mother. Uh, I think she 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 really believes in that, mm. um, and she sees this woman transgress the bounds of motherhood mm. and outcasts her own flesh and blood. And I think something in that, uh, it, you know, that scene can be played as an out and out, you know, sort of um, 
obscenity, disgust, but I want to retain the power of argument and to try mm. to actually penetrate Richard's strange mind because you're what I feel like I'm actually witnessing a madman or a, 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 he's lost. He's lost to humanity. So I'm trying to actually hook him back in, mm. even through all the rage and, and anger. But um, so when I realise that he has no oath that he lives by, it's it's triumphant, but it's also hollow because I want to I want to touch him as a human. And so I have this moment where I actually give him uh, an embrace. It's an extraordinary moment. I've never seen that scene done like that before. It's extraordinary. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a strange. It's, it's kind of like when Rose has the kiss with Richard. Yeah. Oh, many spoilers here. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> listeners. Um, where you kind of go, how is that possible? But... But it's a human-to-human moment as opposed to an idea to an idea. So, mm. yeah, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I've forgotten what the question is, but it's, well, a, it's, a, it's a strange journey to go through. And then I, I think she just, she loses herself. Mm. She just goes, she, yeah, she's oblivious. I think you've really articulated exactly what was happening there because, I mean, he, Richard is asking for something that is quite absurd. You're asking, you know, to convince this woman that, you know, she needs to band with him mm. to, for the good, um, you know, goodness of the realm, for um, strength in unity. It's, yeah. It has a lot of contemporary echoes. Mm. And, uh, and you're trying to get through to him that this is just insanity, mm. you know. And I really, I think that argumentative um, piece that you've got there, it's not just rage and anger. There are so many other dimensions to that scene that is... It could easily be a very one-dimensional scene and mm. a very, you know, just one-sided affair. But, you know, you're almost looking at Richard wanting to see if anything's quite, t- you know, tinkering in his brain or mm. his eyes might move or change and think, oh, actually, maybe, you know, she has a point. But yeah, And it's weird that the night you saw it, opening night was so warm to Richard. Like, the, the laughter was so intense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so when you as a character, whether you be a Lady Anne or a Queen Mother or a, or a Queen Elizabeth... Uh, I are going through these intense emotions, but the audience is just so on side with Richard. Hugely. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really tricky. And I had a moment where I actually looked at the audience and, and Kate is all for this. I said, oh, is that okay? And she said, yeah, you have to shame yes. them. You have to shame the audience because yeah. that's that's the task of, of the production. Mm. We're not interested in having a Richard that we love all the way through. We're interested in the discordance that we feel along the way. Yeah, and the, the questioning, should we be? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I actually liked it when the actors looked out into yeah. the especially when Kate did because we were all like big fans of Richard and we were like yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. yeah but it is I mean I came out I think it was right at the end but also at interval and thought god why do I love this character so much yeah. I mean a huge part of it is Kate's portrayal and yeah. the, that way that she does it but I also feel that is it going to be really difficult to watch a man play Richard because I feel that the way that Kate plays him creates an otherness that oh. only a woman could yeah. do. Yeah. And she's the underdog yes. as well. I mean, whether you see her as a woman playing a man or a man or a transgender person on stage, she's the underdog. Whether she's a man who's a smaller version of her brothers who has, you know, got a disability... There's so many, and we as Australians love that, you know. Yes, the underdog, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. The underdog, yeah. yeah. And also, I think, sorry, James, I'm no, kind of right. hogging the airspace here. No, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, Shakespeare writes 
uh, Richard as being the most natural character in the play. He speaks to us. And that, as a, as a mm. um, piece of dramaturgy, was the original naturalism, I feel. And the rest of the characters are sort of ideas and yeah. we don't have that same relationship with you. So, of course, of course, it's an epic act of manipulation from Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> well, they are the, they're the plot and they move things along. And yeah. Richard's there, but they are the ones pushing it along. And mm. you see a lot of the male actors um, die as one of their characters. And then come back. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and I loved the activation, I guess, of the people who, the actors who are still on stage and very present mm. while they're on stage, but then immediately activated in such a natural way back into the scene when yeah. it's their time to mm. come on. I guess it removes that clunkiness that can happen. With entrances and exits. Yeah. yeah that's right. And our director, Peter Evans, his idea was that it's like a, a, a party, a terrifying party that you can't leave. <laughs> and you, you just, you, you are condemned to live and relive it in these cycles of violence that continue on. So uh, I feel like it has a really claustrophobic effect and especially mm. here in Melbourne at the Fairfax Studio, we've found the audience is just upon us and we really feel like we're all in the same room together and it's, it's really tight, yeah. um, which I think adds to the pressure of the play. It does. And also, I mean, James, your character, Buckingham, is um, a really interesting one. And without me trying to simplify it, could you share with us where Buckingham gets to towards the end of the play as a character and his role with Richard? Yeah, so Buckingham at the beginning of the play doesn't say much. He's kind of is an observer and and watches these family dynamics going on. He's allied to um, Queen Elizabeth, to Mem's character. <coughs> Sorry. No worries. Um, he's allied to Mem's character and and to uh, their family, but very quickly gets manipulated by Richard into believing that Queen Elizabeth and her brother Rivers are responsible for stirring up strife in the kingdom. And, um, and Richard calls him a simple gull at one point, which I think is an important part of his character. He, he really is taken in by people's manipulation quite easily. Uh, but then once he realises you know, which side he needs to be on, he, he's, he's almost like the operations man. So he, he basically runs the, the PR campaign for, for Richard to become king. He um, in, in turn manipulates the people um, and uh, arranges various murders. But ultimately, um, he is struck down by hubris himself. He thinks that he'll be safe. And all the men in this play think that, oh, I'm the one, I'm mm. smarter than everyone else, I'll be safe. But ultimately, um, that's his own undoing as well. And and Richard, when he has no more use for you, um, gets rid of you very, very quickly. And Buckingham finds that as well, even though he was the right-hand man all the way through. Yeah, it is really interesting to see. I mean, especially particularly at the end when your character becomes so central to the the final, yeah. I guess, ev evolution of Richard mm -hmm. and his taking the crown. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of how you approach the script and the language because mm. I think we can often almost forget that that's a critical part of it. I know it's it's usually, it's very visible, but then as actors behind the scenes when you're getting your script and looking mm. through it and also the rich language 
that Shakespeare is using and yeah. the, those dynamics you're saying about all the different emotions and ideas and movements of characters. How do you approach a script like that? And I know that both of you come from an acting school, one from VCA, one from NIDA. Yep, yep. And they have different approaches. But how do you currently approach Shakespearean texts given that they're, you know, a lot of the ones that you've been doing recently? Yeah, good mm. question. How do we approach Shakespearean texts, Mem? <laughs> I, I, I struggle. Like, I think it's tricky in Australia. We're post-colonial. We don't really have a relationship to the crown. And, um, yeah, so I, I feel... I, I mean, it always starts from the language. I try to um, get that in. And sometimes it takes a really long time with mm. some of the bigger concepts. You know, there's this particular passage that I'm still kind of working in and trying to uh, open up and make sound natural and uh, coming from my core rather than from my head, you know. Yeah. But uh, we were very lucky in this production because Pete uh, Pete Evans, the director, has a methodology where he brings in Meyerhold, which is a turn-of-the-century Russian physical training. Um, and so... All of that happens first thing in the morning and then you enter the floor on the rehearsal with, like, blood in your veins. And so you're in your body, not necessarily... You're, you're, you're disarmed. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think <laughs> that really helped me personally because yeah. it can... I don't want Shakespeare to be academic. Yeah, no, and, no. That, and that's... And it dies immediately when, when it is academic, I think, um, on stage, I mean. Uh, and so, you yeah, having that physical approach really helped us. Um, also, uh, us acknowledging that this is poetry, it's heightened language. We're not speaking... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not a naturalistic play in that sense. And so, so we try and um, uh, grow our performance to fill these huge ideas and big images rather than trying to domesticate the language and bring it down to ourselves. So that, that's, that's about, um, you know, honouring the, the structure of the verse and that takes practice and sometimes takes many, many years of us, you know, doing plays and, and you know, sometimes you've, you've done a show 70 times and then it's closing night and you go, oh, that's what I should have said. <laughs> uh, and so it's a lifelong process. And even John yeah. Bell himself, who's now seven. 75 years old will say that he approaches a Shakespeare play even now and finds new things in it every time. So, yeah, it's a lifelong process. Absolutely. And the fact that there is a two-volume Shakespeare lexicon and quotation dictionary yes. just goes to show yep. that there's so many meanings in mm. the words of Shakespeare and they often even differ in yeah. the different plays. That's right. But then then we say to audiences, um, we have these Q&As and we tell them don't stress about understanding every single word, you know, just allow the, the sense of the scene and the relationships um, to, you know, to, to hit you and just breathe and take it in mm. rather than worrying about understanding every single word. My, that, my mother, who's sitting next door to, uh, to us in, with my child, has described it just, it's just like a river. Yeah. It's just a river yeah. that you get, you you dip your toe in and then you get taken off. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what the show is. I mean, I you're not thinking about the language and going, oh, what was that word? You're going, mm. oh, I got that whole meaning. Yes. And wow, that's some beautiful language. Yeah, that's right, yeah. You just kind of revel in the That's the thing. I it. mean, mm. if only we could all have that power of rhetoric and argument yeah. and precision with language. And that's the thing when you're preparing as an actor, half of it is actually just giving, you, giving yourself permission to go there, yes. <laughs> to yeah. be that 
large and extraordinary. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> With your thoughts. Mm. <laughs> if only we could. If only. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> I'm all for that. And I know that um, Kate, who plays Richard, has did the dramaturgy as well. Yes. I mean... Um, Little side note, I wanted to be a dramaturge when I grew up. That was my aspiration. Uh. But I was told at University Open Day there were only two paid dramaturges at the time. Wow. Uh, And so good luck with that, Amy. (laughs) So I thought, oh, okay, fine. Mm. Maybe it's not my future. Um, But that is a critical role. And the fact that Kate, who plays Richard, is also doing the dramaturgy, what level of, I guess, contributional value does that give to the play? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, and it's very important, and especially because she was very interested in the stories of the women. Now, very often the women are cut heavily in this play. Queen Mm. Margaret's often cut entirely. Queen Elizabeth is um, chopped down very um, heavily. So, So, in fact, what Kate brought first and foremost was a woman's voice to to Richard III, which is absolutely crucial. And then what she does is to bring these 53 speaking parts down into sort of um, 15 parts played by 10 actors. Um, The dramaturg has to decide which story of Richard III she wants to tell. And even in Shakespeare's time, you've got to remember, they never did the full thing. I, Richard III will run almost four hours if you do the whole mm, um, wow. first folio text or first quarto text. But um, uh, even in Shakespeare's time, no play would have been more than two, two and a half hours long. So even they decided which were the performance versions and where the cuts were. So so we uh, we have no problem with that, um, with editing. And, and uh, you know, there are many Richard III thirds you can see in a lifetime many different versions of Shakespeare plays and uh, you're not damaging or harming Shakespeare by cutting I think Mm. (laughs) no I mean it's you can't tell put it that way that that there's anything that's really essential cut out it really feels very tight Mm -hmm. and um, and it goes for two hours and 45 minutes which includes the interval so um, there's a 20 minute interval but you just time flies and Mm. don't want it to end (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, I guess just finally um in terms of your experience in this production and um what it means to you what you know are you going to take away from this is this your i think it's your last um performance in terms of the city that you're in isn't it so so what i guess have you taken away and from your ensemble what have you learned from each other or what what do you think you'll take away from this gosh uh, um Intense pride, to be honest. Mm. I know that sounds mm. smug, but no. this mm-hmm. is a dream come true. Absolutely. And it's been doing so well. And working with Kate has been extraordinary. Mm. Learning from all, you know, all range of actors. Um, getting to sit in a dressing room with Sandy Gore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also touring the country, going to three different venues, three very different cities. And seeing it have such a visceral response from an audience, that's that's something to... to put in my hip pocket and carry around with me. Yeah, Yeah, it's been such an exciting ride and actors love it when they're in a show that's really well received as well and we just feel we bounce into work um, every evening so joyful and happy to to have another crack at telling this story. And um, 
you know, and I mean, one of the main things that I'm going to take away from this and what I've learnt is this kind of physical approach to Shakespeare, mm. which was a little bit outside my experience, to be honest. And I found that this is absolutely essential. The accuracy with which this this play has been directed and uh, and also movement directed by Nigel Poulton, our movement director, um, it just I think took us to a new level of rigor, which I think is uh, where we can all work from now on. Yeah. Absolutely. They're wonderful stories and learnings to take away. Mm. Um, Thank you for joining us. I'm going to let everyone know that the uh, Richard III by Bell Shakespeare, directed by Peter Evans, and uh, the the headline character Richard III, played by Kate Mulvaney, Mm. uh, is running until the 7th of May. So you have time to see it. It's at the Art Centre in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. It's along St Kilda Road. And I have to tell everyone to get in quick because I checked and the tickets are selling very fast. they are. Yeah, that's right. The show's got a lot of attention. We have lovely audiences here in Melbourne already. So, Yeah. yeah, we're hoping to sell out soon. Yes, and they will, I'm sure. So, yeah, just don't buy the tickets I want. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I will be back and see it again because I want to savour the moment of just how amazing it is to see Shakespeare and I'm sure that if Shakespeare was here, he would be very proud. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, (laughs) yeah, one of the greats, um, seriously, to see this this play. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Um, So that's Meredith Penman, who plays Queen Elizabeth, and James Evan, who plays Buckingham, who's also the Associate Director at Bell Shakespeare. Thank you for joining us and have a lovely day. Thank you so much. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. Um, I'm very pleased now to have uh, with me in the studio Tim Wright, who is Asia-Pacific Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And uh, Tim has been doing a lot of work on this issue for quite a long time. Um, and he has actually recently been in New York following the latest and contributing um, on the part of, of his particular NGO. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you in. And um, in particular, we've been following the issue of nuclear weapons in a range of ways. And and one of the ones um, which I mentioned at the top of the show was uh, John Pilger's latest documentary, The Coming War on China, because uh, the the effects of nuclear weapons are very much documented, um, particularly in the Marshall Islands in that documentary. And it's, it's currently on SBS On Demand if anyone's interested. But it just... It brings home, I guess, the um, the devastating consequences that nuclear weapons have on any area where they are tested, um, on the people as much as the environment themselves, and also just the destructive capacity they have, and the potential for, you know, full blown war um, if someone did actually, you know, release a nuclear weapon. Um, who knows what that could catalyse in terms of the conflict that we're seeing, Tim? What brought you to focus on this issue yourself? What drove you to really to be advocating for this ban on nuclear weapons? Well, I suppose I've been interested in this issue and concerned about it uh, since I was a child. I learnt Japanese at primary school and uh, as part of that course, we studied the devastating impact of the atomic bombings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, And we actually folded a thousand paper cranes each year and sent them uh, to those cities. 
as a symbol of our commitment to nuclear disarmament. Uh, so I guess that's where my interest began uh, and it continued uh, throughout uh, high school uh, with my involvement in the UN Youth Association and then uh, at university, I was involved in establishing this campaign, ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, uh, which has just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Wow. Um, and it's really exciting to see the progress that we're finally making. Mm. Well, I mean, that's already a fairly long story. And the story of um, the history of nuclear weapons goes back even further, doesn't it? And when exactly um, did we first, I guess, develop these nuclear weapons? And um, I mean, I mean, in what are, what are the most extreme cases that we've seen of nuclear testing or just um, nu- use of nuclear weapons in war? So the weapons were developed in the early 1940s. Um, the first nuclear test was in July 1945, and then it was just a month later, uh, or a few weeks later rather, that they were used uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and more than a quarter of a million people died instantly or within a few months of those attacks. Uh, and many thousands more have died subsequently from radiation-induced illnesses. Um, There have also been around 2,000 nuclear test explosions around the world, including here in Australia, in South Australia and off the West Australian coast in the 1950s and 60s. Um, And those tests had devastating consequences as well. Um, The worst nuclear tests in terms of the environmental and health effects uh, are the atmospheric tests. And fortunately, uh, those tests stopped in 19. 80, but uh, other forms of nuclear testing have continued. Um, The most recent nuclear testing has been by North Korea uh, and that test program continues. Yeah, I mean, we see that constantly in the news now is the threat that North Korea makes uh, about escalating these tensions and, you know, testing the other weapons that they have. Um, Recently, People have thought that it's been quite embarrassing that their their weapon was not very su- successful in the sense that it almost um, destroyed or self-destroyed itself once once it had actually been launched. But I mean... There's, there's not absolute certainty as to exactly what how much capacity they really do have and what they may have in the future in terms of their ability to wage a nuclear war. Yeah, it's unclear, uh, as you say. The estimates uh, on the North Korean uh, stockpile are largely to do with uh, the capacity that they would have had to develop uh, fissile materials, so the raw ingredients for producing them. Um, somewhere perhaps between half a dozen and a dozen nuclear weapons, but a lot of uh, uncertainty about whether they would be able to deliver those weapons to their targets. A lot of experts uh, believe that they couldn't, uh, but obviously they're they're trying to develop that capacity. Mm. Well, I mean, I know I have a friend in South Korea and there's constant anxiety about that because, I mean, they're not that far away. So yeah, of course. that might be um, something that they can be more accurate with when it's a closer target, I guess. Yeah, and I should just put it in context, not in any way to downplay the North Korean threat, but uh, the United States, for example, has around 7,000 nuclear weapons, a similar number uh, in Russia. Uh, so it's a very different um, situation in North Korea, but... Um, 
certainly a matter of deep concern uh, for South Korea, for uh, Japan and other countries in the region. Uh, even you know, Australian politicians talk about the threat potentially to Australia, although I think that's um, a remote possibility. Uh, but, um, you know, we need to be uh, contributing to the de-escalation of these tensions. We need to be serious about nuclear disarmament more broadly beyond the Korean peninsula. Uh, and unfortunately, we haven't seen that from the Australian government. No, we haven't. And let's look at that because I guess there's two points there. Um Australia and Donald Trump are looking towards China to de-escalate North Korea and putting it on them to, I mean, utilise their relationship and suggest that they should not be escalating tensions and, I guess, speaking out. Um, at the moment, they, they recently referred to Julie Bishop, suggesting that she should not be taking the side of America and flattering them. Uh, but also then looking at Australia's involvement through this process at the UN, well, it's non-involvement. Um, it's an active boycotting of this process. Could you share with us how um, the the process came about in terms of, and this is probably the longest UN title I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not sure if it is, but the UN conference to negotiate a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons. And then I think it says leading to their... Ultimate Leading towards their complete elimination. There you go. Yeah. So I haven't counted the words, but it's a very long title. Very precise title, though. I'm sure there are reasons why it's that language. But, I mean, this is just happening now. We've, you've seen the, the latest or the first conference, but it has a history in terms of it coming about. How did it come about and where are we at in this process and where, where on earth is Australia? Yeah, so we've been working on this for a number of years, even though the negotiations have only just begun um, a month ago. Uh, but it, there's been a big process um, in terms of preparatory conferences uh, and those conferences have focused on the devastating uh, humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. So looking at the evidence instead of kind of abstract concepts of geostrategic stability and deterrence and so on, which have really dominated the discourse on nuclear weapons uh, to date. And so we tried to uh, reframe this issue as a humanitarian issue. Uh, and we did that because we had seen uh, with other weapon prohibition treaties, for example, uh, the prohibition on anti-personnel landmines, the prohibition on cluster munitions, those treaties were negotiated because governments came together and they looked at the unacceptable humanitarian harm that the weapons were causing. And so uh, we worked in partnership with a number of governments uh, to convene uh, large uh, conferences uh, which brought together not only diplomats but also uh, academics and survivors of, of nuclear testing and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, to build that evidence base and to build uh, the humanitarian case for prohibiting these weapons. Um, you know, I mentioned the prohibitions on landmines and cluster munitions, but uh, there are also prohibitions on chemical and biological weapons. Other indiscriminate weapons have been banned, um, and yet there's no comparable prohibition for nuclear weapons. So this is about filling that legal gap. Absolutely. And in particular, I mean, 
the the reasons or some of the reasons why um, nuclear weapons have, I guess, been seen as a special case, uh, particularly by Australia and the US, is that it's a deterrent. Um, so, you know, the United States um, has suggested that because or whilst uh, North Korea has nuclear weapons and other states that they, um, you know, such as Iran, although they're supposedly disarming, um, you know, that whilst these other countries that we're concerned about um, have nuclear weapons, Weapons, of course, the United States must have uh, a you know significant stockpile of nuclear weapons, and because Australia does not have their own and is reliant upon the US through ANZUS for that, that of course we will back the the United States. Do you think this argument um, really is a valid one? It's a very hypocritical position. Um, you know what influence does Australia have in uh, persuading North Korea to get rid of its nuclear weapons if Australia at the same time is arguing that nuclear weapons are essential for Australia's own security? Um, you know, it's giving legitimacy to these weapons by having them as part of its security doctrines. Uh, and you know, this treaty that we're involved in negotiating uh, is about establishing the same rules for all countries. Uh, and not kind of distinguishing between so-called rogue states and uh, you know, other countries. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, yeah. I'm sure North Korea sees the United States as a rogue state. Mm. We all have our different uh, perceptions and every country with nuclear weapons uh, has its arguments as to uh, why it has them. But you know, if deterrence were an effective strategy, then the logical conclusion would be that every country should have nuclear weapons and we would all be safe. And of course, that would be an incredibly uh, dangerous world. It's dangerous enough uh, living in a world with nine nuclear armed countries, uh, let alone a world with 200 nuclear armed countries. Mm. So uh, it's a very dangerous uh, doctrine. Uh, I think the fact that nuclear weapons haven't been used in war for more than 70 years is largely to do with luck rather than any kind of magical power that these weapons have in terms of deterring and keeping the peace. Um, So we do need to challenge those concepts. We need to uh, draw attention to the many near misses um, in terms of times when the world almost um, uh, came to nuclear war uh, and 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 you know impress upon people that this could happen. Um, this could happen by design, by accident, or by miscalculation, uh, unless we take disarmament seriously. Absolutely. And what I find interesting about this particular negotiation is that it's focusing on establishing a legally binding agreement or document that would, um, you know, bind the the signatories, the signatory countries to disarming and um, not producing or having nuclear weapons in the future. How many countries are part of these negotiations and who is notably absent? So there are around 130 governments involved, so the vast majority of the international community. Uh, The countries that are absent are the nuclear-armed countries uh, and a number of their allies, including Australia. Um, There are a couple of countries that uh, claim protection from nuclear weapons that are involved. For example, the Netherlands is participating and it hosts US nuclear weapons on its territory. But uh, largely those countries with nuclear weapons in their security doctrines aren't there. Uh, But this comes as no 
big surprise. They believe that these weapons are essential and um, don't want to see them prohibited. It's as simple as that. Um, but we believe that by putting in place this prohibition, uh, it will have a profound impact on their policies. It will create an enormous amount of pressure uh, from the international community at large, uh, but also from their own publics. You know, this is something then that the parliaments in these countries will be asked to consider. You know, should their country join with the rest of the international community or should they remain uh, an outsider of this international uh, regime? And the fact that Australia is a party to the bans on chemical weapons and biological weapons and landmines and cluster munitions, it just looks very uh, inconsistent, uh, to say the least, that they would not be part of a treaty prohibiting the very worst weapons of all. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at Australia and its role um, as a middle power and I guess um, it's in the past uh, often seen itself as a good international citizen, um, I think we're probably losing our reputation quite a bit on a number of fronts, including the Great Barrier Reef and mandatory detention um, of asylum seekers. But, I mean, why would you not be involved in negotiations because surely if you're in the negotiations you're not naturally binding yourself to whatever the outcome is you still have to agree upon it don't you yeah so the argument that the government put was that uh, this treaty or the process isn't in australia's national interests and it wouldn't be able to negotiate in good faith so one of the principles of international law is that if you're entering into a negotiation, then you need to uh, do so constructively with the intention of uh, pursuing the objective. Yeah. Uh, so they basically said that um, we couldn't do that because we don't agree with the objective. And that's why they've decided not to have a seat at the table. Mm. Uh, Labor was very, the Labor Party was very critical of that decision and said that at the very least Australia should be there. Uh, and in fact, Labor has a policy position to support a treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons. So we'll be um, putting a lot of pressure on them uh, when they form government uh, to uh, fulfil that commitment to support this treaty. Absolutely. Do you think it would be I mean, how long do you think these negotiations will take? I know that it, they're often, there's a lot of toing and froing with any international agreement with so many stakeholders involved. But I mean, what is the ideal outcome that you're seeking? And also, what do you think is realistic? So, a further three weeks have been set aside in June and July uh, for the negotiations. And uh, the chair of the negotiations has said that she hopes uh, to conclude the treaty by the 7th of July. Um, so, that's what we're working towards. Uh, we then expect that the countries will sign and ratify the treaty. Um, so, we would be hoping at least 100 countries would do so um, within the first couple of years. Uh, and then it will be a longer term project to get some of the other more difficult countries uh, involved. I think uh, in Australia, this government has taken such a strong position against the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to uh, get them to flip their position. Um, but I am confident that at some point in the future, we can get 
and Australian government to to join this. Uh, every other country in our region supports this process. New Zealand is one of the leaders. Indonesia and Malaysia and the Philippines and Thailand are you know, there at the negotiating table and making really constructive contributions to this process. All of ASEAN uh, is on board. So why is Australia uh, this outcast in, in, in our own region? Mm. I think in time um, they will join um, the overwhelming majority of nations in rejecting these uh, catastrophic weapons. Well, it certainly highlights the complexity of the Australia-US relationship and uh, its evolution and perhaps uh, suggests that we should be challenging um, our level of reliance and ties with America when it comes to our defence. Uh, you know, it, the ANZUS Treaty doesn't seem to have evolved all that much uh, in the gosh, how many years is it now? 60 or 70 years since it was formed. I mean, in terms of the United Nations and treaties such as these, that, and particularly if you look at the other treaties uh, prohibiting such as chemical weapons, um, you know, if you're a signatory to that treaty and it's legally binding, how is that enforced? I mean, you know, if you break that treaty or you you know it's still in your law or you've still ratified it how what is there what's the i guess the way to police it in terms of keeping people and countries accountable yeah there are different mechanisms in different treaties uh, some of them would uh, refer the matter to the UN Security Council. Um, others would propose adjudication by the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Uh, so there are you know, a, a range of um, uh, mechanisms available potentially to uh, enforce a treaty. But I think the uh, bigger... You know, the, we would basically be looking at a treaty which where the state's parties collectively would... Um, be ready to criticise any other party that stepped out of line uh, and put pressure on them collectively uh, through that through that way. So this is about establishing a really strong norm against the use, production and possession of nuclear weapons, a, yeah. a kind of taboo. Mm-mm, to normalise that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and finally, Tim, in terms of your involvement in this and, and, you know, witnessing the negotiations, and I'm sure there are ways that you've been actively part of it at, in New York as well. I mean, how have you um, experienced this process of negotiating and what, um, I guess, what really has given you hope in this, in this area? Well, this is the first time we've really seen all of these nuclear-free nations of the world uh, step up and and start setting the agenda. Um, for too long, they've kind of been sitting back idly, hoping for the best, and that's not a good strategy for achieving a nuclear weapon-free world. It's not a good strategy for averting a nuclear catastrophe. Uh, and so I'm very much encouraged by uh, the level of commitment shown by the nations of Southeast Asia, of the Pacific, of Africa, of Latin America and the Caribbean. These countries are uniting uh, in this effort and a number of the European countries as well. Um, and really saying that we're not prepared to have our security undermined anymore by these uh, hand, this handful of countries that have you know, 15,000 nuclear weapons between them, um, posing a, a threat to all humanity. 
Yeah, so it's collective action. Yeah, and it's a form. and it's a partnership between governments and civil society. Mm. Um, so that aspect of it is also um, very encouraging and promising. Well, that's good to hear because <laughs> it's it's been a long time coming, I think, and it's great that we've gotten to this point. Um, I hope that we can check in with you again and find out what happens in July yeah, that'd and be wonderful. get the outcome from that one. Uh, thanks so much, Tim, for joining us. Thank and you, Amy. Have a great day. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.